we stopped at verse 14 uh, last week in chapter 16, and it's a perfect place really to stop because something altogether new begins at this particular point. Uh, David has been driven out of the city of uh, Jerusalem along with his family and uh, the men who were uh, loyal to him from all the way back uh, in the old days when he was fleeing from Saul and all of their families. And this great mass of humanity is fleeing the city of Jerusalem for their lives, not because some uh, you know, dictator or madman has come from another country, but because David's very own son by the name of Absalom has risen up to try and overthrow David as king and indeed to kill his father. And so this is the scene that we're in the middle of. And we're told in verse 15 that meanwhile Absalom and all of the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel was among them. So David, uh, uh, Absalom uh, began his rebellion against David in the city of Hebron, uh, some miles below, south of Jerusalem. He now uh, enters into the capital that David has vacated. And as David is fleeing now to the Judean wilderness and ultimately to end up on the other side of the Jordan River, modern day Jordan is as, as we know it today. And so he comes now into the city and he calls kind of a, a staff meeting together of his leaders and a man by the name of Ahithophel was uh, among them. And we remember that Ahithophel was uh, Bathsheba's grandfather who was uh, bitter against uh, David because of his violation of his granddaughter and also the arranged uh, murder of her husband, a man by the name of Uriah the Hittite. And so in his bitterness, he has joined with Absalom in his rebellion uh, against his father. They have two entirely different agendas going on, as we're going to see, but they are united together in this thing called bitterness. It's a terrible, bitterness is a powerful unifying uh, force for human lives, but it is very dangerous and it is always very destructive. And these two men are both going to die before we get done with our chapters uh, this evening. And then so it was when Hushai, the archite, David's friend, he came to Absalom. Remember last week, David had sent him. He's an older man. He said, I can't be trudging, taking you all around the Judean wilderness. Go back into Jerusalem and uh, and be a spokesperson for me. Ascertain how big is this rebellion? What is kind of the strength of Absalom's force? And how serious is this thing? David is fleeing for his life. All he knows is this is big trouble. We're likely to all be killed. But he doesn't know anything more than that. And so Hushai was sent back. He is David's friend, remains David's friend. And he came to Absalom. Uh, and, and when he had done that, he, Hushai said to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. So he's pretending loyalty. Now, you got to like Hushai. Ah, yeah, you got to like him. Uh, Hushai's funny in this exchange because he's going to say several things to Absalom um, that he could very easily. Absalom, because he's got such a big ego, he's just a maniac. He thinks it's all about him and his pride. He's going to assume that uh, Hushai is saying all of these things about him when, in fact, Hushai is probably saying, long live the king, long live the king, concerning David out in the wilderness. 
And so most of what he says here can be taken as expressions of loyalty uh, to David. But um, but again, Absalom is going to interpret it the way that his his pride would do that. So long live the king, long live the king. He's saying that about David. But and so Absalom said to Hushai, is this your loyalty that you showed to your friend, to uh, my father, David? Why didn't you go with your friend? Why didn't you fly, flee the city with him? Well, let me tell you, I tried to, but he sent me. Okay, can't tell him all that. And Hushai said to Absalom, No, but whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel choose, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And so he declares himself the servant of whatever king that uh, has been chosen by God and all of the men of Israel. He's on whoever side uh, God is on. And uh, so he is uh, wanting to, uh, you know, he's he's giving the appearance that he's communicating that loyalty again to Absalom. But again, the words are capable of more than one meaning. And uh, he is uh, clearly recognizes that David is the king that has been chosen by God. And he's still serving him now in this uh, this new capacity. So he's uh, that's a good politician. I'll tell you right there. He's. He's good at what he does. And so this is and, and I've been loyal to your father. And why wouldn't I be loyal to the son of the former king for the sake of the nation and so forth? And Absalom said to Ahithophel, he's done with this. He, he was uh, suspicious of Hushai, but uh, Hushai's answers have kind of uh, satisfied him here. And so then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give advice as to what we should do. So he asked the counsel of, of Ahithophel. Now, where do we go from here? This fascinates me concerning Absalom. Because there are so many Absaloms still today in the world. There's an Absalom in me, not by nature, but he's in there because we all come from the, from the same messy gene pool called Adam and Eve. But he's in there and he's in some of us a little bit stronger than he is in, in others of us. But here is Absalom. And the Absalom, all he's good at is rebellion, revolution, destruction, overthrow. And now once he has accomplished his overthrow, he doesn't have the foggiest idea what to do with what he's gained. And there are so many people, all they're good at is destroying something that they're a part of vying with others for the control of it. And once they get the control of it, they don't have any character at all or the necessary wisdom and gifting to be able to lead. And that is Absalom all the way. So now he has it. He doesn't know what in the world to do with it. So he turns to Ahithophel now for the counsel with what to do uh, next. And so Ahithophel gives his counsel and he said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, the ten Concubines that David had left in Jerusalem to keep the palace, never dreaming that there would be a violation of them by any king that would overthrow him, much less his own son. But here's the counsel of Ahithophel. He said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. In other words, lie with them, abuse them sexually. It's a rape. And all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father when the hands of all then the hands of all those who will be strong. A couple of things here. 
Ahithophel is, in a worldly way, pretty wise here on this thing. By Absalom going in and laying with his father's wives, which was the absolute highest humiliation you could mete out against a king. Really against anyone, just to lay with their wife. So, but to do this as a son to a king, I mean, this was just... This was intended to create a rift between David and Absalom that could never be repaired. And that's why Ahithophel counseled it. Because Ahithophel was intending that now all of these men that have joined Absalom in his rebellion against David, they might be thinking in their noggins and saying, yeah, but what if they send messengers, Absalom sends messengers to David and David sends messengers back and somehow there's a reconciliation between the two of them and they come to some kind of an agreement that David will reign for a certain number of years, turn it over to Absalom and the whole deal. All of these men that had uh, aligned themselves with uh, Absalom, if David ever became king again, would uh, probably be executed for treason. So Ahithophel says, listen, you want to absolutely solidify, I mean, make strong as iron the support of these men behind you, knowing that you, there will be, never be a reconciliation between your father and yourself. Do this to his wife, that will, wives, that will burn all bridges. That's the intent of it. It's, it's, in its perverse, wicked way, it was outstanding uh, counsel. It does something very interesting as a exposure of Ahithophel. Because Ahithophel has joined this rebellion with Absalom against David. And it would appear that he's done it because of his bitterness against David for violating his granddaughter. And now when Ahithophel has the opportunity... To show himself to be the moral superior to David, he stumbles terribly. And he is involved in the rape of ten women. He becomes ten times what David ever was. All of these women that are going to be abused this way all have grandmothers and grandfathers, just as he was to Bathsheba. They all have mothers, they all have fathers, they all have family. And he now advocates the violation of them and in, in to do to them the very thing that had provoked so much bitterness in him. It's the danger of bitterness. We talked about it two or three weeks ago, but it's worth remembering. When God comes to us and he says, vengeance is mine, he's not kidding it's not a suggestion. It's not the idea that we think, all right, I, I, God kind of suggests that I leave vengeance to God. But really, we don't have to take him serious on that. We can mete out our own vengeance out of our own bitterness related to the wrongdoing that's been done to us. Here's the danger of it. Only God can mete out a vengeance or a judgment that is proportional to the crime, to the sin that's been committed. The danger for you and I in our bitterness is that we will go two times beyond what the person ever did to us. Five times beyond. Ten times beyond. 
You cannot control bitterness. It will, if we allow it, if you allow it, and I speak to myself as well, any of us that sits in this room tonight with bitterness in our heart, if we allow it to live, it, and, and it will always work to its, express itself one day, it, when it finds expression, it will go way beyond what even you ever intended that it would go beyond. Ahithophel has an opportunity to go down in history, Jewish history, as one of the greatest leaders in the history of the nation. One of the counselors that made the nation of Israel great at at its point in human history when it was the greatest it had ever been. And he throws it all away to express his bitterness. And he becomes Ten times the monster that David ever was, or ten times at least the sinner than David ever was. Now, he wasn't in his, all of his actions in his counsel, he wasn't the moral superior to David at all. He was much less uh, than David. And we're going to see that he doesn't repent. He commits suicide. There's no Psalm uh, 51 or Psalm 32 coming from Ahithophel by the time this is, this is all said and done. This is why you look at Ahithophel. It's so easy to look at him and say, you know, but in, and we read his story and we read his account and his daughter and his, his granddaughter and his, you know, grandson-in-law. And you can look at it and you can say, you know, I understand him. I understand his bitterness. I understand his hatred. I understand his desire for vengeance. I understand Ahithophel. Better than I understand David, at least when David was committing the sin and hadn't repented. The problem is, is we can understand his bitterness, but look at where it leads. Absalom's going to die. Ahithophel's going to die. 20,000 young men of Israel are going to die. And they're going to die under under Ahithophel's counsel. And and all he does here is, I mean, we can understand one another's bitterness, but it doesn't mean we can go down that path or take it into our... That's why the writer of the book of Hebrews says, beware of a root of bitterness. I mean, not even a tree of bitterness or a shrub of bitterness or something that sprouted above the ground. Bitterness hidden under the ground, just a root of it. Only you and God are aware of it. He says, beware of a root of bitterness. Because it will end up defiling many. And Absalom's rebellion, or his, his bitterness, or Ithophel's bitterness, is going to end up defiling so many people. It's dangerous. You say, why invest the time in it? Why make a big deal out of it? You already said it three weeks ago. Why say it again? I'll tell you why. Because tonight, someone can go home and not take the message of the Bible seriously, or tomorrow, or the next day, and harbor that bitterness, and the next thing we'll do is we'll be reading about you or me on the front page of the Modesto B. Because if you act out on bitterness, rather than the leading of the Holy Spirit, you will overreach, way overreach, and we can find ourselves in a lot of trouble. This man is going to mar his entire legacy in order to take vengeance out on David. And so go in, lie with the concubines. In verse 22, 
And so they pitched a tent for Absalom on the top of the house. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. And he took them and violated them. And here's Absalom. His big excuse for his rebellion against David, David's failure to act in the disciplining of Amnon and the rape of Absalom's sister Tamar. And when he has a chance to show himself the moral superior to David, far from proving himself to be that and thus perhaps worthy of being the king of Israel, he reveals himself to be ten times the sinner and monster that his father was in his lust. And so he heeds the counsel of Ahithophel and commits the terrible deed. Now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God. And so was all the counsel or the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. It's interesting that uh, the reputation that Ahithophel had, again, talking about the greatness of his reputation. To go to Ahithophel, I mean, we're talking about a gifting. We're talking about a calling. We're talking about a godliness that for a time in his life was off the graph. We're talking about the kind of person you look at and you just go, that is one of the most amazing servants of God in human history. And he destroyed all of it for bitterness. The gift that he had, and God had given him the gift to be a help to David, was if you went to him and you could say to him under any circumstance, what is the mind of God related to this issue? And he had such revelation from God that whatever answer he would give would be as if God was speaking in the situation. I mean, that's the, the kind of gift, the power of the gift that he had. And he throws the whole thing away. Chapter 17, and moreover, Ahithophel isn't through here. He counseled Absalom and said, now let me choose 12,000 men and I will pursue David tonight. So he requests of, of Absalom, give me 12,000 soldiers tonight. I want to personally pursue David this very night. I want to attack him with strength this evening. I want to attack him while he's weak and disorganized and reeling from these events. He's not sure what the capacity of our power is and our strength. This is the time to hit him. Now, this is, very, this is um, kind of a... a, a Backhanded praise, actually, of Ahithophel toward David. David has fled Jerusalem with his 600 men. I mean, if you could only have 600, these were the 600 guys. I mean, battle-tested, tough, years and years. Tough, tough guys. And so here is Ahithophel, and he wants to go out and wipe, destroy David and kill him that very night. And he says, uh... Give me 12,000. Not twice as many, not three times as many, not four times as many. He wanted 20 times what he knew David had in order to go out and, and to, to kill him. Really a form of praise and probably grudging respect. And so Ahithophel said in verse 2, I will come upon him. And there's a lot of I will in here. I will come upon him while he's weary and weak and make him afraid. And all the people who are with him, they will flee. And I will strike 
only the king, then I will bring back all of the people to you. And when all return except the man whom you seek, all the people will be at peace. And so he, Ahithophel, and rightly so, he realized that this was the moment to strike David, a very strategic moment. He would never be weaker than he was at this moment, more vulnerable. And uh, so let's not lose this moment. Let's attack him immediately while he's weary and while he's in disarray. And he promises there in verse 3 to Absalom that he'll be victorious. I'll go out. I won't wipe out the army. I won't wipe out the 600. I'll go out with the single purpose of killing him. And I'll find him and I'll kill him. And when their king is dead, then the 600 and all that are joining David at this time, they will return. And it will save Israel having to go through a very bloody, large civil war if we just are able to go out and strategically take out, uh, take out David uh, himself. Now, the Ahithophel... Interesting, as you see, the I will, I will, I will, I will, repeated over and over in these couple of verses here. Ahithophel has absolutely zero interest in being king. He doesn't want to rule at all. He doesn't care about power, not one bit. He doesn't want money. He doesn't want position. He doesn't want anything. All he wants is to kill David. That's all he wants to do. And, and this, the only way he could be sure that it was going to happen is if he did it with his own oversight and with his own hands, uh, so to speak. Again, Absalom thinks he's completely in charge of this whole situation, and he doesn't know that he's gotten in the middle of a very private war between Ahithophel and, and David here. I'll kill him in the battle the same way that he arranged the death of my granddaughter, her husband, Uriah the Hittite. Now, this counsel that he gave... Uh, it pleased, we're told in verse 4, the, uh, Absalom and all of the elders of Israel. They thought it was tremendous. Now, there's only one weakness in Absalom's, uh, Ahithophel's counsel. And the weakness is, is that he requested that he would leave the, lead the army out and that he would be the one responsible for the death of David rather than Absalom. So if they went with that battle plan and Ahithophel was successful, it would make Absalom look weak as a king, as if he could not, uh, he could rebel against his father, but he didn't have the bravery or the military expertise to, to kill his father and defeat him on the field. And so he, it's, it's the only weak spot in his entire argument here. And so Absalom then said, now call Hushai the archite also. Let's get a couple of opinions out here. And let's hear what he has to say, too. And then Hushai hobbled in, older guy that he is and all, and long live the king. Hmm. And so Hushai came to Absalom, and Absalom spoke to him, told him everything, Ithophel, his whole plan that he had laid out, and, and said, shall we do as he says? If not, speak up. Now, Hushai's got a problem. He's got to think really quick on his feet, doesn't he? Because Ahithophel's counsel is perfect in, in, in terms of doing a bad thing. This is perfect counsel. He's right. Absolutely right here. And, and so here is Hushai. He's got to look at this thing and he's got to think on his feet. What's the flaw in this thing that I can come up with a, a plan? He's got to come up with an exact opposite plan to Ahithophel because Hushai's just trying to do one thing. Buy David time. So David can 
reorganize. He can get uh, his, his security situated for him and his family, regroup, and prepare to defend themselves. I mean, every minute that Hushai can buy him is very valuable. And so Hushai said to Absalom, the advice that Ahithophel has given is not good at this time. All right. Uh, that's a, a, a good thing to say, but now what do you back it up with? So he said, four is a reason word. Said Hushai, you know your father and his men. So he starts to pick apart the weaknesses that he perceives in Ahithophel's plan. You know your father and his men, that they are mighty men. And now you have, they, what you've done to them, you, they are enraged in their minds. They can't wait for you to send anybody out here to kill them. You got, they're ticked off, believe me. And they are enraged in their mind like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Got some hunters in this room. How many of you have seen a bear robbed of her cubs in the field? You jumped in the Jeep and sped out of there too, didn't you? You never want to meet a bear that's been robbed of her cubs. They're going to, she's going to fight to the death. In something like that. He's saying this is, this is the mental attitude of, of these. What you've done to them is provoke them in this way. Don't think they're reeling like a bunch of children out there. These are tough guys that you've really upset. And your father's a man of war. And he won't camp with the people. Surely by now he's hidden in some pit or in some other place. If you think you're going to take 12,000 out there and you're going to find David still with his men... David's a man who knows warfare. He knows you're after him and not anybody else. If you think he's with, still with the main body of his army and he hasn't hidden himself in some unknown cave, then you don't know anything about military. You don't know anything about your father. And, and where David is fleeing at this point in time is his old stomping ground when he was a shepherd boy in the area of Bethlehem. And then later on in his service to Saul, he knew every cave in that territory. Absalom knew it. You're not going to go out there. I don't care how many men you take out there and just strategically take out David. You're not even going to be able to find him. And it will be when some of them, if you throw that force against them right now, sure, you'll be able to hit them with that 12,000. But when they hit that 600 men and and the ferocity of their fighting power, that first wave of of infantry that you send against them, they'll be overthrown at the first. It'll just be a slaughter. And then whoever hears of the defeat of the first wave that went in, there is a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. The news will then spread through the ranks till even he who is valiant, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will melt completely. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and those who are with him are valiant men. If you ever need a defense attorney and you look in the yellow pages and there's someone named Hushai, this guy's really, really good. David in his current situation is nothing like the portrait that he's painting here. But again, he's trying to buy him time. He's going to be, he's being very, very effective. All he's got to do is just play, is, is so cast doubt on, on Ahithophel's plan. He said, therefore, in light of the, all of these problems, I advise that all Israel be fully gathered to you, to me, on a big white horse, Absalom, that big old head of hair. 
And here's Hushai. He begins to play to this man's pride. And there's nothing so easy to manipulate in all of life than a person's pride. So Ahithophel wants to go out. Forget about Ahithophel's I will, I will, I will, I will. You're the king. You need to go out and defeat your father. You need that glory. You need that chapter in your life. Don't let somebody else rob you of that glory. And he begins to appeal to his pride. So let's not go out with 12,000. He said, I advise that from that all of Israel be fully gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba, the north of south, all of Israel, an army in size like the sand that is by the sea from multitude, and that you go to battle in person. Let's gather and let's not just get 12,000 that we've got handy. Let's get an army of however many thousands. Again, it takes it takes time to gather that kind of an army from the north and the south of Israel. He's buying time for David. And so we'll come on him in some place where he may be found. Doesn't matter where you, we find him when you've got an army like that. We'll fall on him as the dew falls on the ground. I mean, we'll, this army will be everywhere on top of him. And of him and all the men who are with him, there will not be left, uh, so, uh, be left so much as one. Not only will we kill David, Hithavel says, we just got to kill David. But now you bring back these 600 men who are loyal to him and you'll never be able to know who it is that you can trust or not trust. Let's kill the whole group. Kill David and all of the men that were loyal to him. Take care of it all at once. And moreover, if he's withdrawn into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city and will pull it into the river and there shall not be one stone found there. In other words, if we go out to fight him with an army like this, there is no scenario, we, military scenario, we can't overwhelmed with that kind of superior force. And so Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai the Archite is better than the advice of Ahithophel. And he sent him a check, a, a bill for a half million dollars. So they, they sided with Hushai's counsel. And here's the reason at word four. Because the Lord had purposed to defeat the good counsel or a good advice of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster on Absalom. There's only one reason why that group of people thought Hushai's counsel was greater than Ahithophel's. Ahithophel's was by far the greater counsel. It was because God supernaturally intervened to defeat the counsel of Ahithophel. And the beautiful thing about this is David is running for his life for the Jordan River with his family, with the people that care about him in life. I mean, things could not look worse for him at that moment. How humiliating for this to be a chapter in the life of the greatest king in the history of Israel. And to him, he had to be looking at this and saying, where is the God? Where is God in all of this to take care of me? And unseen by him, God is very actively involved in the situation, in being faithful to his call upon David's life as king. When you find yourself, and we'll all find ourselves there in our Christian lives, 
in a situation where everything looks like everything is on fire all around us. We can't make heads or tails of it. How did this happen? It's taken us completely by surprise. And we cannot see what God is doing on our behalf at that moment. We can always have the confidence that He is working on our behalf at that moment. But it may be weeks or months before we ever learn of it. God is faithful to David. God is faithful to us. We just sometimes don't see it for a while. And so this was the defeat of of the council of Ahithophel. And Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar, the the priests, thus and so, remember uh, Zadok and Abiathar, they were also spies in Jerusalem for Hushai to give them information so they could then get that information to David. And so he said, thus and so, Ahithophel has advised Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so I have advised, and now therefore send quickly and tell David, saying, don't spend the night in the plains of the wilderness, but speedily cross over, lest the king... And all the people who are with him be swallowed up. So he sends a message to David. This is what's going on here. I've given them this counsel. They've taken the counsel. But Absalom is so unstable and, and all. We can't trust that. You've got to get you and your people. Don't slow down. Get across that river Jordan and, and get out of the land of Israel. Now, Jonathan and Ahimaaz stayed at Enrogel. For they dared not be seen coming into the city of Jerusalem. And so a female servant would come and tell them, and then they would tell it to King David. So the whole means of communicating with David was Hushai would give information to the priest. The priest would tell, then tell this woman. This woman then would uh, then go to speak to the, the, the boys of the priest, and then they would take the information out into the wilderness to David. And so that was the chain of, of, uh, of, of the communication. And nevertheless, a lad saw them, saw the, the two uh, young men and told Absalom. And, and they knew it couldn't be any, any good. And both, but both of them went away quickly. They came to a man's house in Bahurim who had uh, a well in his court. And they went down into the well, so apparently dry. And then the woman uh, took and spread a covering over the well's mouth, and then spread ground grain on top of it, and the thing was not known. And when Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahimehaz and Jonathan? And so the woman said to them, They have gone over the water brook. They've gone away. And when they had searched and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. Now, one of the things that this tells us is that even though this rebellion is going on, there's an awful lot of private citizens in Jerusalem who, and in, the, in Israel who are siding with David, not with Absalom in this. And they're willing to put their lives at risk in order to, for him to be preserved as, as a king. So Absalom's popularity wasn't uh, universal uh, at all. Now, it came to pass after they had departed that they uh, came up out of the well. They went and they told King David and said to David, Arise and cross over the water 
quickly, for thus has Ahithophel advised against you. And so David and all the people who were with him arose. They crossed over the Jordan, took all night to do it. By morning light, not one of them was left who had not gone over the Jordan. And so now the Jordan River was a barrier between him and and Absalom and his army. Now when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled a donkey. This is a thorough man. He saddled a donkey. He arose, went to his home, went home to his house, to his city, Gilo, and then he had, then he put his household in order, and he hanged himself and died, and he was buried in his uh, father's tomb. Now there is a, you can look at Ahithophel in, in his actions here. He's definitely uh, a very methodical uh, kind of person. And some people believe that Ahithophel. Uh, committed suicide. Not a good thing for a good Jewish boy to commit suicide. Not a good thing for anybody to do that. But um, but this is extraordinary for a Jewish man of his background in violation of the law of Moses to commit suicide. So a lot of people think that, well, Hithophel committed suicide because of the disrespect that was shown to him in uh, the rejection of his uh, uh, counsel. In other words, kind of the equivalent of um, you uh, heading out to play a pickup basketball game on a playground and you bring the basketball, but you don't get picked up on either side. And so you take your ball and go home like he's a bit of a, a, a spoil sport on things. I think it's much more likely that Ahithophel realized that once his uh, counsel had not been heeded and he had seen how easily uh, Hushai had manipulated uh, Absalom's pride and, and his, his ego. He realized that Absalom is absolutely doomed to be defeated by David. And uh, in, in delaying uh, this battle with his father, he realized that uh, he had just forfeited any advantage he had in his war against his father. And because he knew that following the, uh, David's defeat of Absalom, uh, Ahithophel would be uh, branded as a traitor and that he would also uh, be executed uh, for treason and not really wanting uh, to experience that at the hands of the man that he was so bitter against. He denies David the opportunity by taking his own life. He's not going to give David the pleasure, so to speak. So he kills himself and uh, calmly accepts the situation, put his affairs in order, and he committed suicide. Again, the danger of that root of bitterness and where it leads and the tragic end that uh, it, it can produce within our lives. And then just trying to find my place again. And then David went to uh, Mahanaim and Absalom crossed over the Jordan and all the men of Israel with him. So now they've gathered this great army and the, the, the attack is formally on uh, to seek his father's death. And Absalom made uh, Amasa captain of the army instead of Joab. So he's, he's now the new uh, you know, commander-in-chief. And this uh, Amasa was the son of a man whose name was uh, Jithra, an Israelite who had gone into Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother. There'll be a test on that at the end of... <laughs> Here's the translation of that. Amasa 
is David's nephew. So this is, this is blood now, more blood fighting against uh, blood uh, relations, cousin of, of Joab. And so Israel and Absalom encamp in the land of Gilead. Now it happened when David had come to Mahanaim that Shobi, the son of Nahash from Rabbah of the people of Ammon and Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar and Barzillai, the Gileadite from uh, Rogelim, they brought beds and basins, earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain and beans, lentils and parched seeds, honey and curds, sheep and cheese of the herd for David and the people who were with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. So you say, how was it that David and his, and his people survived out in that Judean wilderness uh, while Absalom was putting his army together, it was because people continued to pop up, righteous men pop up and do the right thing in the support of David. The interesting thing about all of these men is there's not a Jew among them. They're all Gentiles. All Gentiles. But they looked at the situation and they said and probably had relationships with David for long years, but looked and said, listen, Life hasn't been, never been so good in this part of the world since the Lord made David king. We're not interested in David's son reigning, but in the continued reign of David. And so the battle proper in chapter 18, David numbered the people who were with him and he set captains over thousands and captains of hundreds over them. Wait a second. When did he start getting thousands? I thought he just had 600. As the news began to spread throughout the land of David's plight and what had happened to him, again, righteous men began to stream into David's camp in order to fight uh, on, on his side in this battle. So many that he set captains over thousands and then captains over hundreds of them. He begins to organize his, his military forces to Prepare now for the battle. And then David went, sent out one-third of the people under the hand of Joab, one-third under the hand of Abishai, Joab's brother, and then one-third under the hand of Ittai the Gittite, who had just come to, Israel, uh, to Jerusalem the night before Absalom sprung his rebellion. Talk about putting a guy to good use. This guy must have been really tough. So he uses him. And the king said to the people, I also will surely go out with you myself. And so he volunteers to uh, head out into battle uh, and, and lead them in, in battle. And uh, they're not going to have any part of it. The people answered and they said, you shall not go out. It's an exclamation point in my Bible there. You're not going out into this battle. They give the reason why. For if we flee away. They won't care about us, nor if half of us die will they care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us now, for you are now of more help to us in the city. David, they don't care about killing all of us. They only want to kill you. We can go out there and we can wipe out this, in, this army that's come against you, thoroughly defeat them, but they, if, kill, if they kill you, they win the war. So we, we can't be putting you... At risk in this way. And it's a really a beautiful thing. They, they, they recognize that the nation has become the great nation that it was because of God's call upon David's life. They considered him a national treasure. And so 
They stepped up uh, to, to protect him. And David probably very reluctantly said to them, whatever seems best to you. He's about 60 years old, and uh, that's a little bit older for ancient times. He said, whatever seems best to you, I will do. And so the king stood beside the gate as all of the people went out. The army went by and probably kind of a silent salute to them as they went. Now, the king had commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, the saying, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. All right, go out there and defeat this army. But would you please be gentle with Absalom? For my sake. David didn't say, do it for Absalom's sake. He said, do it for my sake. So he wants, he wants them to take Absalom alive in this battle. Uh, Joab is going to have other ideas uh, about that. But it's interesting here, even in verse uh, 5, um, David is absolutely confident of victory. Uh, he, he sends this group of men out there, and he knows what Absalom has and he knows who his general is, and he knows an awful lot about his son, and he has no doubt we're going to whoop him today. And when we do, try not to kill my son. That's the request that he made, and made it so all of the people could hear it as well. And so the people went out into the field of battle against Israel, and the battle was in the woods of Ephraim. Here's Absalom fighting against his, his dad, his stupid old-fashioned dad, his know-nothing old man dad. And he's about to learn that his father knows stuff that Absalom can't even begin to know. David knew, battle-hardened, Absalom never knew a battle in his life. David knew they've got to come and get me. That's what they've got to do. I don't have to attack them. And he chose the best ground in the area for making a defense where he, a, a terrain that would allow him with smaller numbers to negate the larger numbers that Absalom probably had at this point in time. So he chooses the terrain that they're going to fight uh, in. And the terrain that he ends up uh, choosing here in all of this was uh, very, very, we're going to see in, in, in just a, a moment of it, it we're going to, uh, the terrain is one where there's lots of, it's a forest, evidently a lot of uh, brush that's uh, on the ground. Um, I remember working for the phone company is a lineman, and we used to put poles in and run lines uh, up in the Lake Berryessa region in the middle of the summer. It's 104. That doesn't impress you. but And you're going across country and brush like you can't believe to make your way through to get this line through. Brush is a formidable obstacle. In, in life, say nothing of battle. So here he chooses to make his defense in a heavily forested area that has a, a, a massive amounts of underbrush. In other words, by the time that great numerically greater army heads into that brush, 
They can't send the whole army in at once. They've got to send them in in groups. And the terrain and, and everything about it favors the experienced soldier, the brave soldier who is able to hack these people to pieces as they come in hundreds at a time rather than thousands at a time. It would be the equivalent of, of putting a defense uh, where, where a, a numerically superior army has to send that army through a narrow pass. You don't have to defeat the whole army. You just have to kill them as quick as they come through that pass. And that's what David has done here. He's turned the whole thing around to where, where this battle is being fought. It completely favors his, the style of his army rather than, than Ahithophel. And they don't even know what it, in the world it is that they're walking into. And the casualties are, are absolutely astronomical. We're told that the children, uh, people of Israel were overthrown before the servants of David. And a great slaughter of 20,000 took place that day. You ever seen 20,000 bodies dead in a field? We don't see much of that anymore. It's, it's in the future in human history, unfortunately. That's a lot of dead bodies out in the field. Very decisive uh, victory. For the battle was then scattered over the face of the whole countryside. It moved from that brush then as the, as the ch- children of Israel were fleeing on Absalom's side. And these others were now following out, out there to continue the destruction. And the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. In other words, again, the terrain worked to the advantage of David and his army. And then Absalom met the servants of David. And so he comes around a corner, sees, uh-oh, he's driven the jeep into uh, behind enemy lines. So he's riding on a mule. He wants to get out of there as quick as he can. So he begins to flee on the mule. The mule went under the thick boughs of a great terebinth tree, and his head got caught in the terebinth. He's probably just one month away from a haircut. <laughs> of all the dumb luck. So obviously what happens here is his hair gets caught in the branches. The donkey keeps on moving and and he's left, as we're told here, hanging between heaven and earth. Very poetic. He can't get his little legs are trying to, you know, he's trying to do something. And and that mule, uh, which which was uh, he was uh, under him, uh, went on about his business. That mule's clearing out. Now, a certain man saw it, and he told Joab, and he said, I just saw Absalom hanging in a terebinth tree. <laughs> Talk about a gift for understatement. This guy's got a comedy career in front of him. Hey, I just saw Absalom hanging in a terebinth tree. And Joab said to the man who told him, you just, you just saw him? Why didn't you strike him there to the ground? I would have given you ten shekels of silver and a belt. Honest engine? I would have rewarded you. And that would have been a pretty good reward. But he's not dealing with any old rookie here. The man said to Joab, Though I were to receive a thousand shekels of silver in my hand, I wouldn't raise my hand against that boy, against the king's son. For in the hearing of the king 
in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Beware lest anyone touch the young man. Otherwise, if I, I, I would have dealt falsely against my own life. If I had killed him, for there's nothing hidden from the king, he would have found out about it. And then if the king told you to kill me because I killed his son, you'd have risen up and set yourself against me and killed me. Zerav said, I can't linger with you. You're making too much sense here. Now, more realistically, what he realizes is, all right, I don't have the time to waste talking with you. We got the one guy we want to kill here hanging up in a terebinth tree, and we don't want to lose any time and have somebody come in and rescue him. And so he took three spheres in his hand. He's going to do a thorough job. And he thrust them through Absalom's heart as he hung there in that tree while he was still alive in the midst of, of the terebinth tree. Now, obviously, the um, uh, Joab doesn't uh, share David's love for Absalom. Uh, you know, not at all. Absalom's been nothing but trouble for the nation of Israel for years. And now here he's willing to destroy an entire nation because of his, his pride and his selfish ambition. And so... Joab's going to step up and do what David's, David wouldn't do with his son. Again, it is David's weakness as a parent, and it's even apparent here in this passage where he says, listen, show kindness to my son and always, always protecting his, his sons from the consequences of their decision-making. And Joab gets this guy in front of him, and he realize, he doesn't have a father's heart involved in the whole situation. And he knows if he brings Absalom back into the camp and back to David, you can't have two kings. This is just going to divide the nation. It's going to mean more bloodshed. You know, somebody's got to live and somebody's got to die here. And this man's guilty of treason. He's guilty of the death of all of these people. And so he puts the three spears straight through his heart, and he knew how to do that. And you look at it and you say, well, that's pretty cold. It's actually fairly gracious of Joab because he gave Absalom what he didn't deserve, and that was a quick death on the battlefield. He could have taken those spears and just plunged them right into his gut and just let them writhe there hanging above the ground in the heat. But, but in, in an act of mercy, really, he puts him, puts him out and kills him uh, right away. And then the ten young men, the armor bearers of, of Joab, they surrounded Absalom and they struck and they killed him just to make sure that he was dead. And so Joab blew the trumpet and the people returned from pursuing Israel for Joab held back the people. Now that Absalom's dead, no sense killing more uh, Jews. And so he blew the shofar, signaling the end of the pursuit and the end of the battle. And they took Absalom and they cast him into uh, a large pit in the woods, uh, in, a very, uh, in the woods, and they laid a very large heap of stones over him. And then all Israel, now that their king, Absalom, is dead, they all fled uh, to his tent. Now, here's Joab after Absalom is killed. And how does he dispose of the body? He's not going to give him any kind of a royal funeral in Jerusalem. He's not even going to take that body back to Jerusalem. Takes the body, throws it in a pit, and then throws a bunch of rocks on top of it. The ancient world, that's what you did with refuse. 
That's what you did with garbage. This is Joab's commentary on what he thinks of Absalom. I think one of the things, too, and it might have, I can't, I don't say it dogmatically, but I think it's worthy of, of some thought related to this. I think that Joab, in the killing of Absalom, that it, it isn't far-fetched that Joab felt some responsibility for what had happened here. Because it's, it's him who took that woman from Tekoa and kind of got her to get in front of David and to um, kind of con him into allowing Absalom to return when at that point in time, David was just dead set against it. So maybe he felt some responsibility for all of these things that had happened. And so he's going to take care of it himself. And so he he takes and and he treats um, in in essence before the whole nation uh, says this man is a piece of garbage. I'm going to treat his body like that. It can also be a. Though I don't think it, it um, I'm, just a moment, I'm having a conversation in my own mind. As soon as, as, soon as we get this uh, situated, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, then I'll, I'll be back to talk. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. <laughs> but anyway, uh, one of the, uh, the sentence that was to be meted out against a rebellious son that parents could no longer control under the law of Moses was you stoned him to death. You just covered him with a pile of stones to bring his influence to an end. So maybe there is a kind of a spiritual flash. There weren't a lot of them in Joab's life, but it was there where he is looking in these stones, kind of being an image of bringing the end to a rebellious son that has caused so much damage, not only for a family, but also for um, the whole nation. And so uh, the army of Israel, they then fled. They've been mightily defeated. Now, Absalom in his lifetime had taken, uh, had taken and set up a pillar for himself, which is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. So we know elsewhere that he, at one time he had three sons. So apparently they've died prior to this event. So he puts this, makes this big monument to himself, uh, uh, probably in the years leading up to this revolt. And he uh, called the pillar after his own name. And to this day, it's called Absalom's Monument. I can't wait to build a monument to myself in my backyard. <clears throat> Damien's Monument. The greatest... <laughs> No, I'm just thinking again. I'm not, I'm not giving that serious consideration. Let's see, how big would that be? And I'd want him to see it from Prescott, for sure. have to take out those olive trees so that you could really see them from all angles. We'll get it worked out. I'll have the plans for you next week. Where in the world was I here in terms of there's something good? Here's the point of that verse. The only way to leave behind a great legacy in this world is to live a righteous life. He wants to have a great legacy. He wants to have a great place in the history of the nation of of God's people without living a godly life. 
You can't have it. So he thought it could come some other kind of crazy way. The greatest monument that we can build to ourselves to the glory of God is to live a righteous life, to do the right thing in our life. And then the monuments will take care of themselves in this life, which who cares about, but ultimately to receive the praise of the Lord and the eternal reward. We'll stop there tonight. We'll pick up David's reaction to all of this um, next week. Important.